Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science in the City, the public gateway at the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceinthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 25th, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. The way a person reconstructs her past reveals the meaning that certain events held for her. Truth, on the other hand, remains quite another matter. In recent years, just how we store and subsequently recall the past has become the focus of cognitive neuroscientists. As knowledge has been gained of the brain's ability to retain events and learning, it's become necessary to distinguish between various kinds of memory, declarative, semantic, episodic, visual, and others. This has thrown into question a number of assumptions about the mental representational system. This week's podcast comes from the Philoctiti Center for the Multidisciplinary Study of Imagination in New York. During a roundtable discussion, the participants explore those assumptions and what functions are served by the distortion of memory. In the order you'll hear them, the participants are as follows. Moderator Lois Oppenheim, Chair of the Department of Modern Languages and Literatures at Montclair State University. Deirdre Baer, author of biographies of Samuel Beckett, Simone de Beauvoir, Anne Nin, and Carl Jung. Maurice Cond, a BBC producer turned academic who founded and chaired the Francophone Studies Program at Columbia University. Bruno Clement, professor of French literature at the University of Paris and president of the Collège International de Philosophie. William Hurst, professor of psychology at the New School for Social Research and a leading expert on autobiographical memory and social influence on memory. Edward Nersessian, co-director of the Philoctiti Center and a psychoanalyst and clinical professor of psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medical College. I'd like to actually begin uh, this discussion of memory and memory distortion, which is the title of this roundtable, um, with a quote, not surprisingly, from Marcel Proust. Um, it's a brief passage which occurs when the narrator of A la recherche du temps perdu realizes that the imagination individualizes people, as he puts it, and provides each with what he calls a legend. In the passage I'd like to cite, he's describing how the wind wrinkled the surface of the lake and large birds were perched on the great oaks, which, as he says, quote, helped me to understand how paradoxical it is to seek in reality for the pictures that are stored in one's memory, which must inevitably lose the charm that comes to them from memory itself and from their not being apprehended by the senses. The reality that I had known no longer existed. The places that we have known belong now only to the little world of space on which we map them for our own convenience. None of them was ever more than a thin slice held between the contiguous impressions that composed our life at the time. Remembrance of a particular form is but regret for a particular moment. And houses, roads, avenues are as fugitive, alas, as the years, unquote. The phrase that I find most stunning here is remembrance of a particular form is but regret for a particular moment. And this brings me to my first question, which I would address to all the panelists, which is, is there something inherently creative in memory? Is there something that is naturally distortive of memory? Um, and uh, how can we talk about memory in terms of the imagination? Well, I'll tell you some stories. Okay. <laughs> Um, concerning Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre. Okay. Um, when I was doing the research for the Beauvoir biography, um, <clears throat> every, every time I talked to her about her childhood, it was dark, it was gloomy, it was gray, it was ugly, it was black. And I went <clears throat> to the childhood apartment, which was above La Coupole, and it was the top floor and round windows and light <laughs> flashing in from every direction. <laughs> And so I went to her sister, Hélène, two years younger, and I said, uh, you know, this is so strange. She's always talking about how dark and gloomy your house is, and even if you had thick, thick velvet curtains, you must have had so much light. And she took me by the hand, and she said, my dear Deirdre, Simone remembers everything is dark and gloomy and tragic and sad and ugly, and you must allow her her memory. <laughs> and then I went to interview Nathalie Serrot, and she said Simone de Beauvoir was a terrible liar. She never got anything right. She couldn't be trusted. And I said, well, you, you must tell me. You must tell me the instances in which you think she's a terrible liar because I will you know, need to check them out. I'll need to correct them. And she said, 
Every time she writes something about me, it's Nathalie Serrot in her green dress, her green hat, her green suit, and I never wear green. I hate the color. I always wear blue. And if she can't get that right, what could she possibly get right? And then one more story about Sartre. Um, Giacometti was absolutely furious with Sartre and decided that he didn't want to be his friend anymore because Giacometti had been in an accident um, that he felt had a great deal to do with uh, the kind of work that he began to do after this accident. It was, I think, believe it was an auto accident, if my memory serves. And um, it happened at a certain place in Paris, and the place was terribly important to Giacometti. And Sartre wrote about it and made it happen somewhere else. And he said, he's not allowed to do that. Those are my facts. He's not allowed to take my facts and use them for his own means. So. That's very nice. Let me ask you, um, since uh, you began, got the ball rolling here, um, how do you decide as a biographer what memories of your subject to include and what to uh, uh, leave out? And, and I mean, you've written so many extraordinary biographies of people and these life stories. How, how do you determine how important they are to them? How do they feel to you? And, and maybe you could mm-hmm. say something about that. Well, the, the first uh, draft and the first several drafts of every biography I write is so enormous. The number of pages is so massive because I just write everything. I write, it could be a very minor essay and I will do a 15-page essay on this minor essay knowing that I'm going to maybe use a paragraph at the most, a couple of sentences probably in the book, but I don't know what sentences I'm going to need or what paragraph I'm going to need. And I just write it all. I call it the three Ps, the passionate purple prose. And I just put it all in there And then when I finish, I go away from it for a while and come back. And it's only at that point, after I've written everything, that I'm able to say there's a pattern here, there's a theme there, there are important aspects that I must develop on this, that, or the other thing. But you don't know that when you're dealing with material of someone else's life. You must allow it all to unfold, and then only, only afterward, I think a biographer should begin to shape it. Well, I'd like to address the same question to Marie Scondé, who writes uh, of her own memories and has written her own, uh, written her autobiography, has written much of her childhood. Yeah, but you know, first of all, I have to say that there is something very important about me. I'm a colonized subject. So meaning that uh, I belong to a country which is still a colony of France. And so the collective is much more important than the individual. Mm-hmm. We are trying to find a collective memory in order for our people to define itself against the French value. Don't relativity in that. We just uh, know that we are different from the French and collective, as a collective group of people we are trying to find the way of proving that. So when you come to autobiography, like I did in uh, Le Coeur à Pleuré, you do it with a sort of guilt complex. Normally, you should not talk about yourself. You should talk about your people, about your cultivity. And if you go, if you have the audacity to talk about yourself as a person, it is a bit a treason. Normally, you should be concerned with the group and not with the individual. So, when I wrote uh, Le Carrari, all the time I was feeling very guilty, and uh, I had the feeling that really it was a kind of entertainment. I should not indulge it in. So, uh, I cannot answer in the same way because for me the question is almost the same. Nevertheless, one's individual memory is always somewhat a collective memory, and a collective memory is always tied into one's... I mean, it's a question of how one um, <clears throat> constructs a sense of self, and isn't that what we do um, actually in, in the analytic situation? I mean, we're constructing a narrative, we're constructing a self through the reconstruction of our past. Uh. Well, there is uh, very little autobiographical that is very accurate. Most of what is autobiographical, especially from years past, has gone through a series of alterations 
and continues to go through a series of alterations depending on the situation where it comes up. So if you have been uh, involved in analysis and listening to patients for a number of years, you come to the conclusion that almost everything uh, can be understood in a different way, and when you uh, find the distortions in it, you get to a whole set of new memories. At which point those memories are accurate, I don't know. It may be that they never are, but they seem to be more... Uh, freeing in terms of the result that you get from understanding the conflict. So I think it would be very hard to write an autobiography or a biography that you would consider it to be completely an accurate representation of a person. Um, maybe you could throw in something here about false memory? And well, I, I mean, a variety of things that people have said um, raises issues in my mind. I mean, in terms of, of memory distortions, of course, I think you're absolutely right. Our memories are ex extremely unreliable. But one of the interesting things, I think, is how much our present attitude really reshapes our past. And we're really stuck in, our past is stuck in the present in some way, shape or form. And so uh, uh, in, in experimental studies, for instance, if in one study they asked college sophomores to talk about the particular relationship they had, um, an intimate relationship with a, another individual, and some people said it was good, some people said it was bad, but then they went back six months later, and this being college sophomores, some of them were still together, some of them were not still together, and uh, what you found was that depending on whether you were together or not, their memory for that relationship varied uh, to a great degree. If they were no longer together, they remembered that partner as being god-awful. I always knew he was god-awful, and um, um, I, I could have told, I told you that he was god-awful, but that is not, of course, what they reported. If they were still together, uh, they, they remembered the relationship as, as their memory of it was that a year, six months ago it was a quite good mem uh, relationship. So I think that in some sense, when you talk about this process, it's the process that's occurring in the present, which constantly reconstructs your past to make it consistent. I mean, we, what kind of people were, would we be if we weren't somehow imprisoned by, um, if we were imprisoned by the past? We want the past to somehow give comfort to our present self, and, and I think to a great degree it does. The other question that I was thinking as you were talking about autobiographies and biographies, Historians make this big distinction between history and memory, and um, uh, from Nora and on. And um, uh, I was sort of wondering how that plays out in in the writing of the autobiography or the biography. In that, um, to what extent is it a a process of assembling memories, if you like, mm -hmm. and a process of this sort of more scholarly endeavor of going, checking the facts, putting it all together. The psychoanalytic situation is not, not, not a scientific process like that at all. I assume you just accept whatever the patient says at some level. You don't go and then check it out. Um, but well, we have your job is, I think, to check it out, isn't it? Yes, exactly. I, I, um, I'm struck when you were talking uh, about how the past is the present uh, of Anais Nin, the great diarist about whom I also wrote. I think besides Anais Nin, I'm the only person in history who has read every word she wrote. <laughs> um, <because> Not the, <laughs> even her. <laughs> because the papers are still sealed at UCLA, and I had permission to use them for my book. Three enormous footlockers about as big as this table, I swear, plus untold boxes and shopping bags filled with her writings. And and I, I, I had to learn to interpret them, to decipher them, if you will. She'd write of something that happened, and something in me would say, uh, you know, uh, this, is, this is one of the red flag passages. She's going to come back to this. She hasn't told me everything about this anecdote, this event, this person. And a little later, maybe two or three years later, uh, there would be a bit more about that earlier writing. And then finally, it could be as long as 20 to 30 years later, should say, it's been nagging at me all this time, and now I'm going to tell you everything that really happened. And she will then proceed to write of it as a historian would write of it. 
it's not her memory, her emotion, her feeling. It's at 10 o'clock in the morning on such and such a day, I met Mr. X at the coffee shop on 13th Street, and then she would proceed from there uh, to do it. And I found that uh, I, I didn't really analyze that kind of writing in the book, but she she did pretty much what Yeah, but historians and I assume biographers have certain technical criteria they have to use in order to assess a fact. Oh, absolutely. Uh, whereas when you merely remember... Um, uh, whether you're just yes. a person on the street or on, on a couch, yeah. that those those technical technicalities don't apply in some yes. sense. You accept your distortions in a way that a historian is not allowed to accept. Exactly. Those distortions. I, I have an expression that I use. You can't say it was a nice day until you check the weather report in ten newspapers yes. for a week <laughs> yeah, before yeah, and exactly. after. Yeah. Well, well it, it, in some ways, it doesn't matter. I want to make two comments. First. Uh, the psychoanalysts check their facts, but they have a special way of checking their facts, which is not like going out and checking with the family or the husband right. or the wife. Which is what she would do. But I don't know if doing, if checking the facts in that way makes them any more accurate. I would guess it doesn't. The second thing uh, you talked about is really more to do with emotion, because it doesn't have to be college students six months later. You can have somebody tell you today that their wife is an angel, Three days later, they have a fight and come and say she's the worst person on earth. So that the emotion influences the whole set of memories that are remembered at that moment, as opposed to, so you don't have to wait six months. You can do it from day to day with uh, anybody. Bruno, I would uh, Yes, uh, listening, uh, every, everybody here, uh, I think about Beckett. We are three Beckettians here at least, uh, and I remember when uh, Dad speaks, uh, at the beginning of the second part of Molloy, he says it was midnight, Yes. the, uh, the, the rain, I, I, I know that in French, it was rainy, yeah. and the last sentence, it, it was, was not, not midnight, rain. it was not raining, that's about the weather, yeah. you know? but in Beckett too, uh, uh, in the sentence, I don't remember exactly where. I think in the unnameable. J'ai inventé mes souvenirs. I invented my memories. Mm-hmm. And your question was, is there something creative in memories? My opinion, thinking about Beckett, Proust, uh, first of all, of course, uh, is, is it possible that a memory would not be creative? Yeah. Not only for novelists, but I think for uh, critics, for thinkers, for philosophers, uh, and about autobiography, I think that all, all you say is absolutely exact, and we know that. We, we compare what you can uh, check of yes. the reality mm-hmm. and what is written, and the, the, the dress was red or blue, and something like that. <laughs> in, in some film by Truffaut, something like yeah. that. May I change something and put the, the dresses blue? Yes, you can. And you, you see the, the yeah. picture with the, the, the dress of another color. But I think that uh, there are many, uh, many ways of, of, for autobiography. And philosophy, is, perhaps it's strange to say that, but philosophy is one of them. And you can speak about yourself and uh, reconstruct your memories, seeming to speak of something absolutely different, and on creating concepts, for instance. I, I, I can't believe that. I believe that very deeply. Can and you can give us an example of what you? Yes, but the example is not mine. If you if you read um, Derrida, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, a very important, the very short book by Derrida, it, it is a kind of autobiographical text, Circonfession. Mm-hmm. It's uh, an allusion to Augustine, Confession, and Circoncision, the Circoncision. And it says in that very important text that in his opinion, thinking of what he wrote many, many years ago, probably all his concepts, for instance, uh, the bridge, for instance, the margin, for instance, periphrase, for instance, glas, I don't know the word in a, 
in English, glove or uh, the bell, you know. Uh, all these concepts probably were uh, were to be related, to, to be linked to something which is absolutely impossible to say for him. A kind of memory, but not a memory, because if it was a memory, it would not be necessary to invent and to create those concepts. And the thing is, if you say one word, but the word is not sufficient by itself, by itself is circoncision, precisely. But very difficult word to say. So the creation of this concept, of these concepts, uh, they, are, they do something to a memory, but this memory must be reconstructed in many, many senses. For instance, by creating some concepts. I've tried to do some, to do if it was possible to to do the same work reading other philosophers. I think it's possible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible. But okay. you know, many other ways because philosophers can can mm-hmm. tell their story. Descartes, for instance, is an autobiographical uh, philosopher. He says, I, I was born, I was, uh, and so mm-hmm. on and so on. And of course, what he says is absolutely yeah. not true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I am wrestling with something now, um, and I, I'm going to throw it out, and I'm eager to hear what other people have to say about it, because I don't know what I'm going to say. I haven't actually started to write this, but Saul Steinberg, who's uh, whom, whom I'm writing about now, uh, was born in Romania and was educated in Italy and came to this country and became deeply and profoundly American in everything that he did. And he swore that after he left Romania as a college student to go to Italy that he had never been back and that he would never go back. And he told Christo and Jean-Claude, who were Bulgarian friends of his, uh, when Christo was thinking that he would go back to Bulgaria after communism ended there, Steinberg uh, said, you mustn't go, you mustn't go, you must hold to your memory because it is your memory of the place that establishes and promotes and allows to flourish your creativity. If you go back, you won't have that foundation of memory and you won't be able to create. Now, here's the interesting thing about Steinberg. When he was in the Navy in Italy, there's a file this thick in the National Archives of all the strings that he pulled to get himself back to Romania. (laughs) And there is a collection of photos of him in the uniform of a naval lieutenant uh, with his family, with his friends, all over his childhood haunts in Romania. And yet he said he never went back. It's a very interesting question, and actually I'd love to hear what Maurice has to say about it um, in terms of your return to uh, places where you grew up and, and how this is affected. Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, uh, you should not look for yourself, but I did. I looked for Maurice Grandi, which is already a, a kind of crime in my society. So I went to other places I grew up, and you know, there is, there is a kind of imposition of values. You are supposed to like certain parts of your country. You are supposed to be moved when you see a sugarcane fields because a sugarcane field is supposed to symbolize the suffering of your people and the suffering of your mother because the, the most important career uh, book talk about mother, grandmother dying in sugarcane fields. But anyway, for me, a sugarcane film had nothing to do. So I had to, uh, I had to talk, to look for something very personal, very individual. So for somebody like you, or born uh, in Europe, it is easy to talk about yourself as you are. But to talk about yourself as you are, as you uh, come from in the Caribbean, in my society, is extremely complicated. So it is a kind of quest for an, a person, and you go to all sorts of experiences, hardship, complications, just to get yourself as you are. Did you find what you were yes, looking for? Yes, I found myself. 
but it was very complex. It took me a long time, I, I don't know how many years, because it is only a few years ago that I wrote that autobiography. I couldn't have it before. I had a set idea about to be a good man, what I should talk about, what I should feel, and to feel like Marie Scondé, talk like Marie Scondé. It was another experience. You, anyone in your position, can be a kind of link between one person and the people because people need sometimes to have one people, one person they admire, they... And it's very important to do that for you but also for the people who need it because in every country, I think, there are some people perhaps you are too modest to to say yes to what I say, but I think it's very important you did that for your people, not only but for you. But you know, uh, I left Guadeloupe forever two months ago. Why did I leave? Because I have feeling that looking for Marie Scondi all the time, trying to speak as Marie Scondi, to write as Marie Scondi, was not at all appreciated by the rest of the people. They, were, they looked at me with a, a bit of anger, resentment. So I didn't see why I had to be all the time regarded as a traitor, and I decided to live. Among you, I feel better. I can, can talk about myself, and you can help me, as you say. <laughs> Thank you very much. I try. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Yeah, because the point is very important, the, 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 the junction, junction point between individual and collective memory. That is very important. Yeah. Very well, Hallbachs, who was the person I think that probably coined the term collective memory, um, he was a student of Durkheim's, uh, um, he said that individual memories only arise, he, he essentially, depending on how you read him, he's a complicated to read, but for some people's reading of him, there is no individual memory in some sense. We have a sense of individual memories because we have an, a unique intersection of many collective memories. We are Guadalupe, we are um, uh, people that taught at Columbia, and all of, all of those various collective memories that you have, the way they intersect makes you uniquely you, but there's no individual memory to be found. The individual memories are really just the intersection of these collective memories. So the, the, the tie between individual and collective memories, from his viewpoint, is this is really rooted in the multitude of collective memories that uh -huh. we have, which then uniquely make them you, whoever you happen to be. Yeah. I think um, we're talking as though memory is something cognitive or memory is something state-related and affective, um, but we haven't really touched on the question of um, memory and the body and it being a, I mean it is a perceptual phenomenon as well and how we feel in our bodies has to do with what we remember in our minds which is I, I think we can't make the such a well I think we've been talking if I could put it in cognitive terms um, <laughs> I think we've been talking about what I would call what cognitive psychologists would call explicit memories mm -hmm. that is memories which come to mind that are put on the foot in, 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 put in the footlights of consciousness that you have what William James would say you have a personal belief that it occurred in your past <laughs> your personal past they're the kinds of memories we've been, we've been talking about not whereas I think of body memories as more what psychologists would call implicit memories that is memories which aren't associated with, with any sort of conscious recollection uh, and, and so they're really two quite different memories. There are different brain mechanisms involved in those kind of memories. They're really quite grounded in quite different psychological phenomena. And, uh, uh, you know, both are important. I mean, um, uh, uh, our, our selves are determined as much by our explicit, implicit memories as our explicit memories, I think.
can I ask you one question? You know, uh, I'm sorry to be so uh, focused on Guadeloupe, but I'm from Guadeloupe. <laughs> I was born there. <laughs> so, you know, there is a kind of mythology built by the French about Guadeloupe. It is supposed to be a kind of paradise full of uh, wonderful smell, wonderful sight, wonderful others. Okay. But we, ourselves, Guadeloupean, we don't see it that way. We see poverty, we see disease, and so on. So, so how can we reconcile those outside uh, view of Guadeloupe and our personal feeling, memory, if you want to go? How can we reconcile? Or shall we not? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure why you would want to reconcile the tourist, the tourist advertisements no. with the reality. No, it is not tourist, but you know why people come to Guadeloupe and all of them say, ah, that's wonderful. And we come to Guadeloupe, we say, oh, how pitiful it is to be a Guadeloupean. So, I mean, we would like to find a way, a, way, a media between the people from the outside and the people from this side, not the tourists, but I mean people outsiders. If you go to Guadeloupe, you are not going to be a tourist. You are simply an outsiders, an outsider. Okay. Um, Bruno has been working on correspondence lately, uh, I believe, between Hannah Arendt and Heidegger, for example. You just taught a seminar on that. How does that, um, has there been any... Um, Yes, I've been, work, I've been working about uh, philosophers' correspondence on that too, but it's a very difficult uh, subject, especially if you try to, to do the link between memories and uh, correspondence, because, uh, you know, when we read correspondence, we read something that in fact, really actually did not exist because the book in, in which you are reading that never existed before uh, the publisher decided to put together those letters, to select some of them, to, to put some others out of, out of the book. For some reasons, they are very different. Uh, so, this is a decision. And when you are uh, 100, 1,000 letters, you have a kind of selection. Even if they say, at least, at last, it's all the to uh, complete correspondence, uh, but you know that it is not absolutely uh, that is not possible. And the first point is, if we uh, try to do the link, to, to speak about selective memory. Mm -hmm. Selective memory. We have not said that word mm -hmm. yet. I, I think it is very important because the memory, memory is always selective. If there is, a, perhaps you know that you've read that a short story by Borges, the, the title of which is Funès ou la mémoire. Funès uh, has got a kind of disease he remembers absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. He can't forget anything. The least thing he cannot forget it. But he dies. He dies. He cannot live. You can't live if you don't select, if you don't choose some memories, you know. And that's the, the problem of the biography, yes. uh, of the biography, yes. of the, the yes. autobiography too, you know. But I think it's not just selection, it's distortion. I mean, you can't live unless you distort. Selection I mean, is it, a distortion. In some way, um, uh, you know, it's easy, to probe, it's easy to manufacture a memory that's extremely accurate. I mean, computers are very accurate in, in terms of you input it, it sits there, and it comes out in exactly the form that you input it. That's very much not like our memory. For some reason, and it's very hard to build our kind of memory if you're going to build it. Memory that distorts things so that, 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 so that it gives meaning, if you like, to your life. I mean, we, I think we would be imprisoned. We would not be able to live with ourselves if we remembered absolutely everything. 
we would be overwhelmed with an, uh, uh, all of these bad memories, all these good memories, we, and it, it would be, make it very inconsistent with our present attitude. And also socially. I mean, if we all had our own individual rendering of the, our initial individual rendering of the of 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 a past object, we would never we 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 live haunt, living in a Rashomon film the entire life, in which everybody had different renderings of exactly the same thing, and there would be no social bonding between mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that this this it's not just selection. It's not that just we select. We distort in order to make ourselves comfortable with ourselves and ourselves comfortable with each other. And uh, I, in my mind. Rather than distortion being a bad thing, and rather selection being a bad thing, which it's, it's, it's exactly the opposite. Absolutely. God bless that we can do it. But we're also talking um, as though a memory is a fixed entity. Yes. What you remember at a certain moment is not how you remember it. No, I think I'm saying just the opposite. It's not. It's constantly re- being renewed by your present. Well, no, no, uh, sorry, go ahead. Distortion, in a certain way, is necessary because that's the way we uh, manage to control the emotions and the painful emotions. But once you talk about distortion, you are talking about an ongoing event, which means what you are distorting is also there. It's a process. No, but what you have distorted is there, has not disappeared. Psychoanalysis essentially works on the fact that you can remove certain distortions, you're never sure how much of it, but you can remove certain distortions and find something that is behind it that was Mm -hmm. not known. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we don't have all these memories. It's not that they've all been thrown away and cast away no longer exist. Some of them continue to exist, in fact, to the degree that they're the ones that affect our behavior. Not the distorted thing we live. We're talking about the meaning of an event. We're talking about the meaning of a relationship. Or or the memory of an event. Mm -hmm. I'd like to throw a concrete example in here uh, from Beckett's life that I I think that everything that everyone has been saying uh, relates in some way, uh, but not completely, to to what I found when I was writing the Beckett biography. Um, I was just about finished with what I thought was going to be the published book. And I'd had two collections of letters. Beckett was in, he called it exile in Ireland, and um, he was writing letters at the time uh, to um, a poet named Dennis Devlin and to another uh, poet uh, in London who was helping him to get published, George Reeby. Now, to Dennis Devlin, who was in Dublin, he presented a picture of such a happy man. I have pupils. I'm tutoring in French. I have an office in my father's building. I'm going to make my life here. Everything is fine. To George McGreevy, it was, I really need to come back to London. I really need to get out of here, and please, please hurry up and get a book published so I'll have the money to do it. And so then he's writing to both of these people about how, well, mother is giving me her blessing, and I'm going to go off, and I'm going to live in Paris for a while, and everything is so marvelous and wonderful between me and mother. And so I was going to publish this. And then, after years of trying, I was given access to the letters that he wrote to Thomas McGreevy, who was the only person I think I found in his life to whom he was completely honest. And he said things like, last night I was so drunk, I woke up lying in a gutter like a turkey with my mouth open and water coming in, and various people in Dublin picked me up and sent me home. And when I got home, I was so furious with my mother, it was two days before my brother's wedding, that I smashed all the crockery in the pantry, and I had to be the best man at my brother's wedding with my hands bandaged. And if I don't get out of Ireland soon, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown or I'm going to kill my mother. (laughs) And within weeks after his brother's wedding, he was in Paris. Now, okay, the biographer's dilemma, what if I didn't have those letters? And I presented this happy vision of mother sending him off to Paris, 36-year-old man, and she's patting him on the head like a child and telling him to go. Uh, What if if I had only had that? And then what about the three different sets of memories that he chose to distribute among the people that he knew? Granted, of course, the degree of friendship or intimacy with these three different people had a great deal to do with what he chose to write. Do you think there's a true memory there? 
that in you know the deep deep you know in privacy of his bedroom uh, he has a true memory and then he's just spinning little stories or that you know if if I go back to one of the great psychologists of memory which is uh, Frederick Bartlett mm-hmm. um, uh, who says you know there is no real memory there is no memory to point at it's all a reconstructive process that's built out of some potential to remember and the actual is nothing is really stored away so that there I mean because he's writing to one friend this is what comes to mind you know lovely mother you know sometimes mothers are lovely and then um, uh, Not <laughs> uh, and, and, and he's writing to another friend who maybe he drank a lot with so the drinking experience is probably important and he's writing to another friend and so each one what springs to mind is not inauthentic in some sense it's just tailored toward the audience in which he's writing and it's, it, it's as good and true as memory as the next one it's just a different spin or is there some private memory deep down inside which he is then sort of spinning off these fairy tales from well I would, I would like to comment on that just briefly uh, you have to distinguish distortion that is consciously done purposely presenting yourself a certain way to a friend so if you are looking for them to invite you to London you may say I'm so miserable here can you that's, that's not the kind of distortion we are talking about we are talking about distortion that you are not aware that you have distorted or are distorting uh, as regards to the what you found which sounds uh, more his own feelings about what was happening here If it were, if he said, uh, which would fall more into what you describe as explicit episodic memory, I remember Tuesday at 5 o'clock in the morning, December 11th, I woke up in the gutter. Then you would know that that memory is most likely going to be distorted. If he repeatedly woke up in the gutter... (laughs) And he said, you know, I wake up in the gutter most of the time. (laughs) Then that would probably not be that distorted. That would be more falling to what is called implicit or semantic memory, which would be a description of events like we all do. We we say, you know, I remember I went to France in uh, October. That's a fact. But what I did when I arrived there at a particular moment, that's much more liable to be distorted. I think when you're going to talk about Beckett also, you have to remember that he was extraordinarily ambivalent about his mother. There was never a good feeling or a bad... Well, (laughs) luckily not quite as much as he was. (laughs) And I really think that played a very significant role in his correspondence and and how he described his relationship to his mother. uh, The only um, person to whom he spoke uh, in in a negative way, in any way... Was McGreevy. No, he also spoke to Jim Nolson negatively about his mother. Well, that was a long time ago. It was after. much later, after but my he book did. was published. And he said, yes. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So you have to redo it now. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it, there were a lot of things that he said to Jim Nolson that were uh, directly in response to my book. Well, I don't know how far you want to take this. He said it, yeah, sure. Okay, well, I think. Um, All of us were not in that day and said, the truth is, when you say you are going to kill your mother, I'm going to be drunk. That's you say the truth when you are in that state. (laughs) Do you think that the whole term memory distortion is somehow wrong? Because it assumes that there is a memory that then gets distorted. Right. Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, it, it may be that we just have memories that some of which, uh, if a biographer comes along and goes and checks it, they turn out to be completely wrong, self-serving, uh, and, and all mm-hmm. sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but and in some level they're distortions, but they're probably really good memories as well. Well, you're actually asking if all memory is misremembering. Well, yes, and right? you, you had asked that question too. In, in you know, is is there any memory that's not somehow um, imagination? All, all, all autobiographic memory we are talking about, because yes. there are other memories right. that are not. Of course, only autobiographic right. memory. That question would come up. I, I don't know if the answer can be known. You know, Freud felt differently. Freud thought that you kept the traces. Yes, I know this. Yeah, so it was one on top of the other on top. Whether it's so or not, I don't know. But certainly in analytic, uh, in the analytic situation, 
you find out other things behind other distortions, and but at what point you stop but and say it, that's what, it? What is it like a lo- uh, onion? That once you peel it away, there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but are there other kinds of memory besides autobiographical? The person who was at Hiroshima or Pearl Harbor or I'm thinking, you know, PBS War is in my mind these days, so I bring up historical memories. Uh, the person who was there has a particular sliver of the event because the memory is both historical and autobiographical and we write history, we base history on uh, so much that is autobiographical. Even historians, even historians of the Roman Empire who believed that they were writing true histories of the Caesars brought a personal interpretation to it. So. You know, I don't know if this is a valid remark or not, but it seems... I would like to say something. Yes. You say that memory should not be... All memories are distorted. But it seems to me that the the speciality of collective memory is to try not to be distorted. Individual memory can be distorted. Yes, is bound to be distorted. But the collective memory has to be right. Otherwise, Why do you say that? It seems to me, because if we go on uh, believing as a group in some lies, it affects the society we belong to. So uh, the effort that we are trying to make all the time is to put things right as far as the collectivity is concerned. So collective memory should not be of, uh, full of fantasy, full of uh, distortion, should be right. It seems to be. Should no. be. Whether they are, it's another issue. No, that yes. <laughs> but should be. It seems in order to allow the individual memory, the individual memory, to be as it is, we need the collective memory to be right. It seems so. Huh. <laughs> this is your faith. My <laughs> faith. <laughs> Continue that it. When Continue it. talking about memory, she's talking about her own experience of uh, her her subjective experience of something that happened in her past. When Deirdre or uh, Bruno is talking about writing about the memory of somebody else, it's passing through somebody else's mind, and yeah. it has to have some kind of distortion to some degree by the mere fact that it's coming through your mind and not through directly from the person who experienced it. Yes, because I'm selecting. I'm selecting. Right. So what, it's a selective as, as a historian, memory. as a scholar of comparative literature. It's memory a, by proxy. Exactly. It has to be based on fact. In other words, you know, uh, the, the biographer has to be the artist under oath. That's Desmond McCarthy's wonderful phrase. Uh, the biographer cannot uh, tell you anything unless it's true. I've just finished reading Diane Ackerman's marvelous book, The Zookeeper's Daughter. And this woman constructs a story that is absolutely glorious to read and everything she says is based on a document based on an archive based on a journal but there again you're making and there's a, a story between historical fact yes. and the idea of truth in memory yes. which I think Ed has articulated that doesn't exist as such a, go ahead no, Bruno talking about, uh, about the distortion distortion uh, we we seem all of us think that the distortion is not volunteer when when it is, but perhaps sometimes it is. It is, and that's my response, my answer to what you said too. This is a political question. Yes. What you said. This is a political question because the memory of a of a, of a people of a, of a collective memory they can be. Uh, transformed, they can be changed, they can be uh, manipulated, you say that, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, by political power. Yeah. Yes. Uh, oh, that's a point, a very important. Uh, and that's a distortion, a real one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and not always uh, um, uh, intentional. Sometimes our collective memories are unintentional. Yes, distorted. absolutely. It doesn't yeah. have to always be some authority imposing down mm-hmm. a, a, a power. But don't you think that only if collective memory 
is not distorted, that individual memory can be free to go, distort, change, improve, metamorphose. It seems to me that once collective memory has become something uh, sure, definite, we can trust, we can allow ourselves as an individual to be totally free. Which we cannot before. <coughs> I'm not so sure you can ever reach your ideal. Uh, be, and, ah. and that gets, that's, that gets uh, Bruno said this earlier, I mean when you, when, when you essentially consult these cultural artifacts in order to check the facts. Well, the cultural artifacts are as much manipulated as anything else. We decide when, uh, in, in, uh, uh, in American history, at some points the archives were very, didn't exist at all, and at other points they were very underfunded, and so the amount of documents that were collected varies at various yes. points in American mm, history. Yes. So these, this, this budgetary consideration has a huge impact on our ability to construct a collective uh -huh. memory. Um, uh, and, and, yes, and, and it's also true for autobiographical memory, that I decide to put a picture on the, my wall uh, will have an immense impact on how I remember my past. Because I will look at that picture of a friend and suddenly every time I look at it, these certain mm -hmm. memories will come to mind. Well, if I didn't, because there's not enough wall space, so I don't know why, mm -hmm. um, don't put that picture on the wall. Suddenly my whole autobiography has changed. In the same way, if you build a memorial, mm -hmm. if you don't fund the archives, or if you overfund the archives, you create a certain collective memory that has it. If development comes to Guadalupe and they knock down all of those um, um, uh, sugarcane fields, you've lost um, uh, uh, either a positive or a negative or a cultural artifact. Um, uh, and there's, it, it, it's there, and it's going to shape your memory. Like it or not, it's going to shape your memory. To find out about all that's happening at the intersection of science and culture, visit our website at scienceandthecity.org.